Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of Endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Amen. This chapter has much to say about sin and judgment. In fact, the resolution to all of our sins is explained in verses 1 to 25. And then if we reject this resolution, the only path, the only way of the forgiveness of sins the only way of eternal life through Jesus Christ by his death. If we reject it, then verses 26 to 31 apply. And verses 26 to 31 are some of the most fearful, dreadful words in all of Scripture. Few people contemplate the meaning of these words, the actual, effective, and final death of Christ and what that means in their own life, but also what it means to reject it. The evidence of rejection and the fact of rejection and the consequence of rejection. What will actually happen to all those who pretend to believe in the death of Christ, who actually show by their deeds, by their dirty deeds, their evil deeds, that they are unsaved, That is what is explained in 26 to 31. Then in 32, 32 to 36, or 32 to 35, he encourages them with what he has seen, that they persevere so that when afflictions come, especially when persecutions come, 
when relatives and friends, co-workers, or even the authorities of the nation work against you, what will you do? Will you maintain the faith? Will you keep the faith? Or will you deny the faith? Deny confidence. If one denies the faith, then he will shrink back to destruction. But if he maintains the faith strongly in Christ, then he will be one who receives eternal life. This is the summation of the chapter of chapter 10. Let's now go paragraph by paragraph because there is much here on sin and judgment. First, verses 1 to 4. Verses 1 to 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The apostle, he proves by the very frequency of the sacrifices that the frequency of the sacrifices and by use of the blood of bulls and goats never take away sins. The frequency, the repetitive nature of the sacrifices and the fact that they are animals It's not the Son of God. They are animals. These animals never take away sins. This is militating against the false doctrine that they believed and most people believe. Most people believe that if they do the right ritual, whether it's one, ten, or a thousand, if they do the right ritual, then they are good enough to go to heaven. So it depends on their good deeds, not the death of Christ. They don't truly believe in the death of Christ. He said that the sacrifices were actually shadows. Did he not say that in verse 1? He says they are only a shadow. The shadow is not the big deal. But the person approaching, or the reality, the body, the individual is the big deal, not the shadow that we see of the individual approaching. It is the individual himself that is the big deal, that is the source of salvation. The shadows depicted, portrayed in the sacrifices were not the source of forgiveness. Therefore, it's not of human origin. Salvation is not of human origin. No man can do any good deed. Even he cannot do these good deeds repetitively. Did we see how often he said this? Look at verse 1. He said, never same sacrifices year by year 
Offer continually. Verse 2. Would they not have ceased to be offered, having once been cleansed, no longer have had consciousness of sins? Verse 3, reminder of sins. There's a reminder of sins because they are repeatedly offering the animals. And he says, year by year. It was daily, as he says in verse 11, it was daily and it was annually, it was monthly, it was seasonally, it was throughout the year on many occasions, even weekly, the Sabbath or Sabbatarian sacrifices were offered on the Sabbath day also. There were many, many numerous, innumerable sacrifices that were supposed to be offered. So if there are innumerable sacrifices and they are sacrifices of animals, what kind of a person would think that that is his salvation? Only someone devoid of true knowledge, only someone who is so perverse into thinking that his performance of a good deed or repeated good deeds is his ticket to heaven. That is a corrupt and perverse thought that any human could think that his good deeds ought to earn his salvation. He's saying, no, that's not the case. The Jews at his time wanted to believe that, and most people throughout the world today, that's what they believe. As long as they do certain things that their religion tells them to do, they will be just fine when they die. Yet the apostle says it's not true. He says it's impossible, verse 4. Impossible. If it's impossible for the repeated sacrificial animals to save based on the good deeds of men, then what is the way of salvation? This he explains in verses 5 and following. 5 to 18. He says in verse 5, Therefore, why? Because of what he just said. If those sacrifices were insufficient, then what is the solution? Where is the resolution? Where is our redemption? Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, who is the he? The he is the son. The he is Christ. The he is our savior, our mediator. And he is speaking to the father, to God the father. The son speaks to the father when he comes into the world. Why? Because when he comes into the world, he is announcing, he's declaring that he is fully aware, fully (coughs) conscious of the fact that he knows his mission. He knows his purpose. He knows the reason for his incarnation into this world. Why? He says so explicitly. And he contrasts it with <clears throat> the animals. Verse, verses 5 to 7 are quoting Psalm 40, 6 to 8. <clears throat> verses 5 to 7 are quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. 
It's important to note this fact because Psalm 40 was composed by David. Composed by David, written by David, King David, who lived 1,000 years before the incarnation of Christ, 1,000 years before the first coming of Christ. And he lived four to 500 years after Moses instituted for the nation of Israel the sacrifices. Therefore, he's living in this period of the sacrificial system of Moses. God ordained through Moses sacrificial system. Now, a contrast between the sacrificial system of animal sacrifices and Christ. Christ himself, again, is speaking to the Father and he declares full awareness, full knowledge of why he's coming into the world. He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. God, we already said through Moses, instituted these sacrifices. <coughs> we find them explained in Leviticus chapters 1 to 9. The various sacrifices are explained in the first part of the book of Leviticus. They were definitely instituted by God through Moses. But why then does he say, why does the son say to the father, you have not desired and you have taken no pleasure in them? He's saying it in the sense that the forgiveness of sins for anyone is not based on the animals. God did desire and require them. He did desire and take pleasure in them in that he commanded Moses and the people to obey by offering them, but to obey and offer them as a shadow, as a type, as an illustration of the coming Christ and his death, so that their faith should not be in their good works and the animal, but their faith should be in the coming death of Christ. That's why Jesus says to the Father, he has not desired or taken pleasure in them. In that way, because they are not the source of anybody's eternal salvation. Knowing that, he therefore says in verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the roll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. In the roll of the book, according to the divine decree, according to the divine Words according to the divine prophecies. All of this is written of Christ. Whatever is written of Christ that he will perform, he should perform. He's saying he knows it's time for him to perform. To do your will, O God. He came not because his life was taken away from him. No man takes my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative and I take it up on my own initiative. This commandment I received from my Father. John 10, 17 and 18. Therefore, as he said to his enemies that he always does, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John eight twenty nine. 
he's declaring it here too. He has come to do the will of God. Verse 8. He is now, the apostle is now going to explain this contrast. Verse 8. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Notice there. He himself is telling us, the apostle himself is telling us, why is it that Jesus said that? That God doesn't desire and require and take pleasure in the animals, which are offered according to the law. If God commanded the animals to be offered, why does he not desire, require, and take pleasure in those animals? Because they are not the source of salvation. They are the source of illustrations, but not salvation. That's why Jesus confirms it in verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By saying he's going to come into the world like this and offer his own body, Remember that in verse 5. But a body you have prepared for me. His own human body, his physical body, sinless, perfect, unblemished body. It is that body that came into the world to do the will of the Father. The moment he says that he understands this purpose, this mission, the contrast between animals and his own human body. The, divine, the body of the divine Son of God. He is both Son of God and Son of Man. Son of God means He has the nature of man. Son, uh, nature of God. Son of Man means He has the nature of man. And therefore, when He asserts He's coming, He's coming to abolish, take away the first covenant. And in this passage as well as elsewhere in this letter, when he says first and second, he means the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant. That's what he means by first and second. Not that the Mosaic covenant was the ultimate first covenant, because there were covenants before Moses, such as in the book of Genesis. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Noah. But he's talking about it in reference to Moses, the major one that had jurisdiction over the whole nation for a long period of time for the purpose of preparing them for the coming of Christ, he's calling the first covenant. That first covenant is to be taken away, to be abolished. Verse 10, by this will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By this will. What will? By the will of God, verse 9 said. Verse 7 also said, by the will of God. Your will, O God. Again in verse 9. Your will. 
Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He did the will of the Father by dying on the cross for our sins. And therefore, by the will of God, we have been sanctified, have been sanctified. Past tense. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all means one time for all time. One time and for all time. He says it again in verse 12. He says, one sacrifice for sins for all time. The body of Christ. The body of Christ is of infinite value because of the blood of Christ than any number of animals. Animals are not created in the image of God. Only male and female are created in the image of God, but not animals. Therefore, his body was necessary and his body actually did die. It was offered and it <clears throat> was the source of our salvation, our sanctification. Verse 11. To the contrary or in contrast, verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The earthly priest, now they don't do it because the temple was destroyed in AD 70, but at the time of the authorship of this letter, the priests were standing and offering sacrifices. They were offering daily sacrifices, time after time, and the same sacrifices. Yet they could never take away sins. Never take away sins. However, Christ, having offered his body as one sacrifice for sins for all time, only one for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. This doctrine is important for us to understand. Though we hear about the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, often, it is easy for us to be dull of hearing. It's easy for us to be casual and callous about what we understand with the significance of his death. But the apostle is stressing the finality of his one sacrifice for all time. It was necessary, according to the will of God, for it to happen. If it did not happen, there is no salvation for any of us. That's the significance of it. And when we think about it, we ought to slow down and meditate on that fact. 
that nothing we do, even the good commandments of God related to the ritual sacrifices, not even those could save us. Not anything even subsequent to that. Nothing that we invent. If something God commanded cannot save us, then certainly anything we invent will never save us. Only the sacrifice of Christ. Furthermore, when the priest stands daily, when he finishes his daily tasks, what does he do? He retires for the evening. He sits down, he goes to bed, so forth, right? But what did Christ do? He sat down, yes, having accomplished his work, but he did not sit down in his home on the earth. He sat down at the right hand of God, which is a much better and loftier, more important and grand place than to sit down in one's own house on the earth. He sat down at the right hand of God. He ascended into heaven and he is seated there. Why? Because he is reigning. He is ruling. And verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Those redeemed by him will be saved by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But those condemned He is waiting for that time of condemnation to occur, which will occur when he returns. And when he returns, his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Taken from Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1, anticipates the accomplished death of Christ and the ascension of Christ and the reigning of Christ at the right hand of God the Father, until his enemies are destroyed. Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Another summary statement. One offering perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's the only way. 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind. I will write them, he then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The Holy Spirit is in agreement with the Apostle. The Holy Spirit, though he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 33 and 31:34 he's quoting Jeremiah the prophet Jeremiah 31:33 to 34 yet he says the holy spirit agrees with him which heightens the authority at least in our mind in our reception of it we're not talking about just a man 
though he was a holy man and a true prophet, Jeremiah. But the Holy Spirit was behind Jeremiah the prophet, the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, the Holy Spirit is a witness, is a witness who is bearing witness to us. If the Holy Spirit is talking, we better listen. And listen to what? Listen to the fact that the Holy Spirit already anticipated this. The Holy Spirit already predicted this. The Holy Spirit already said that there will be a covenant that does not involve animal sacrifices. This is the covenant. A covenant that does not entail, involve animal sacrifices that will be the basis for which laws are put into the human heart. That is the blood of Christ in the new covenant. That is the way God changes the heart and puts his law within our heart so that we're no longer following earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, but we are following heavenly and eternal wisdom because the law of God is in the heart. He wrote them there in the spiritual, mysterious, miraculous way by the work of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, then God does not remember our lawless deeds anymore. Meaning, He will not recall them to punish us on the day of judgment. He will not remind us of them to punish us on the day of judgment. He will not hold our sins against us. As it says in Ezekiel 18.22, where the prophet says that he will not remember, God will not remember the sins of the man against him. He says, not remember against him. Ezekiel 18.22, which means that not that God is able to obliterate any memory of things of the past. That's impossible because God never learned anything, past, present, or future. He means that they will not be remembered against us on the day of judgment. Therefore, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Then if forgiveness has been offered, forgiveness has been received, forgiveness has been accomplished, then there's no longer any offering for sin. No more offerings. Contrary to all those who believe in repeated sacrifices. And some religions, and even within Christianity, Catholicism <coughs> teaches repeated sacrifices. These are all contrary, and they are undermining the words of Scripture, particularly our passage and many others. He took pains to emphasize the, the sole, solitary, single, exclusive nature of the sacrifice of Christ that cannot be emulated, cannot be repeated, 
There is no other way but to truly understand why Jesus died on the cross. 19 to 25, an encouragement or exhortation. He will present three of them to us. He'll introduce the exhortations, but then in 22, 23, and 24, he says, let us, let us, let us. He will first tell us what is true, what has been accomplished. Verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 19 and in verse 21, he says, Since, because these are true, because these have been accomplished, therefore draw near. Well, what has been accomplished? We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We can enter heaven not because of the blood of animals, but by the blood of Jesus, which is, even on a superficial level, more superior than the blood of animals. Verse 20, By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We're not talking about the flesh of animals. We're talking about the flesh of Christ. A perfect, spotless, sinless human, divine and human at the same time, but his humanity is here being emphasized. Why? Because his humanity had to die. His blood had to be shed on our behalf. He is the one who presents to us a new and living way. Further, he is called a great priest over the house of God. This is a reminder of the contrast he made in chapter 7. In chapter 7, the high priest in Aaron's line and the Levitical priests of the tribe of Levi, they had certain roles, but mainly their roles had to do with these illustrative sacrifices, typological sacrifices. Their duty was not to offer up themselves, but this priest offered up himself. He's different from them because he is of the order of Melchizedek. This is back in chapter 7 where he explained these contrasts between the regular priests of Aaron's line and the tribe of Levi and Christ. If this is the case, he accomplished it and he is the great priest. What should we do? Verse 22, let us draw near, draw near to whom? 
draw near to God. With a sincere heart, not with a malicious heart, not with an insincere heart, not with pride, not with evil intentions, but with sincerity, in full assurance of faith, not with double-mindedness, not half-heartedly, but have full confidence, full assurance of faith. This is the way we must approach God. Why? Because our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. These, he's using these illustrations, the sprinkling and the washing of the body. Sprinkling of the conscience and the washing of the body to be depictions of how we are cleansed. Our sins are wiped away. We are, our garments are white by the blood of the Lamb, as the scripture says, in the spiritual, miraculous way. The evil conscience came because it was a guilty conscience. The evil conscience has to do with us knowing that we are still in our sins, we're still guilty, and we seek for release, we seek for cleansing, we seek for our consciences to be pacified or comforted instead of feeling guilty. Now we are cleansed of that, not by animals, but by Christ. Verse 23, another exhortation. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 23 is similar to what he has said about holding fast in Hebrews chapters 4 and 6, or 3, 4, and 6. Hebrews chapters 3, 4, and 6. These three chapters, he emphasized the fact that we should hold fast or cling on tightly to the confession of our faith, of our hope without wavering. Again, he is attacking the double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. Let that man not think he will receive anything from the Lord. James 1, 7 and 8. We cannot waver. We cannot be wobbly. We cannot waffle at all. We have to be strong, secure, and stable. That's the way we hold fast to our confession. And what is the ground? What is the basis? Why should we do so? For he who promised is faithful. This is what Abraham believed. Remember, by two unchangeable things by which it is impossible for God to lie, Abraham believed them. We should believe them that God is faithful to fulfill His promises. His Word is faithful, and then when He intensifies the Word with an oath, like He did to Abraham, He's telling Abraham and telling all of us, 
His word is faithful. And then when he puts an oath on it, he's giving us assurance that he's going to fulfill his promises. Do not doubt his promises. Promises of forgiveness, promises of eternal life, promises of resurrection from the dead, promises of being with him in heaven forever, promises of immortality and glorification, all of these promises. The third exhortation, 24 to 25. The third one, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In this third exhortation, he's telling us that we must consider how to stimulate one another. Before we meet together, we ought to pray, think, and consider how, when we do meet, we are going to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Meeting one another is not simply meeting and seeing familiar, happy faces. It's not merely so to eat food. It's not merely to have a good time and to hear some good words. These are a part of it, but they are not the main reason. The main reason is to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How can we stimulate one another to love God and love each other? How can we practice good deeds? What needs must be met? We should ask. We should keep our ears open and then volunteer to do them, to love and good deeds. Not only ourselves, but then encourage the others to love and practice good deeds too. Further, verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. Some people have the habit of forsaking the assembling together. They think they're just fine and they're swell. Nothing will happen if they are absent. Everything will be fine between them and God, even though they forsake coming to church. Some people have a habit of this because they are trusting in their human power, human wisdom, and false promises, false hope, false assurances that everything will be just fine if they don't assemble. He's telling us not to do that. And in contrast, he's telling us to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's saying all the more it is important for us to meet together and encourage each other as the day of the return of Christ draws near. It is important to meet together, not to forsake it. Now, 26 to 31. He has said some things about 
the death of Christ that we must believe. He has also exhorted us to draw near to God, hold fast our confession, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. These are the recent exhortations he's presented to us in 19 to 25. Now look at 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. When we have received the knowledge of the truth, by receive the knowledge of the truth, he does not mean that one has truly converted by the knowledge of the truth. Elsewhere, the scripture does mean that, such as in 2 Timothy 2.25. In that passage, in 2 Timothy 2.25, it does mean to receive the knowledge of the truth so as to be saved. But here, he's talking about it in terms of delivery, in terms of hearing it, in terms of having knowledge of it, because it was preached. He's talking about it in that sense. He says, if we have received the knowledge of the truth in that sense, and go on sinning willfully, deliberately, He's not talking about ignorantly. He's not talking about falling into sin here or there. He's talking about complete rejection manifested in bad fruit, manifested in repeated pattern disobedience. That's what he's talking about. Go on sinning Willfully. If that happens, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. If we reject the sacrifice of Christ, then there's nothing else. No animal's going to do it. Giving money doesn't do it. Doing a good deed to help your neighbor is not going to do it. Nothing's going to do it. There is no sacrifice for sins. If we reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and manifest that rejection by willful disobedience, going on sinning willfully, then it shows that there is no sacrifice for us. We don't even believe in the death of Christ. But what? What will happen. Verse 27. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. There is a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. This is a New Testament verse, one among numerous ones, innumerable ones that present this threat. People think the New Testament only has promises. It is absent of threats, 
absent of condemnation, absent of judgment. But no, that is false. It's a heresy that leads numerous people to hell. Right here we have in Hebrews chapter 10, and this is not the first time, we have a severe statement, a very hard statement to accept for the casual Christian. He's been saying things like this since chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, chapters 3 and 4, chapter 6, verses 3 to 8. And now he repeats it here in chapter 10. And it's not the last time. He's going to say more by the end of the chapter, and he's going to say more in chapter 12, the last half of chapter 12, about this certain, terrifying expectation of judgment. That's all that awaits those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Nothing else will save them. There is no sacrifice for sins. In fact, quoting Isaiah 26.11, Isaiah 26.11 in verse 27, he says, The only thing that awaits them is the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Yes, this is why hell is also called, in the book of Revelation, the lake of fire. Eternal punishment is also called lake of fire because the fiery wrath of God will consume all of the adversaries of God. And if we think of this, think of this punishment correctly, we'll understand what he's saying in 28 to 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Moses' worst penalty was the death penalty. That's the only thing, that's the worst penalty Moses could inflict in, in the law of Moses. What is the worst penalty if one rejects Christ? He says in 29, it is a severer punishment. The only thing Moses could inflict was a temporal, physical death penalty. But if one rejects Christ, he has the eternal death penalty of the human soul. That's why he says it is severer Notice the comparative adjective, much severer. How much severer punishment? It's more severe. How much more severe? Well, the difference between eternal, eternal torment and momentary physical torment. And he does deserve it. He deserves it because he tramples underfoot the Son of God. That which we trample, typically, is that which we despise. Remember Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9? He trampled with the horse, with his horse he trampled uh, upon the body of Jezebel. 
he trampled on her and then went to eat and then said, well, let's, we need to bury her. She's the, she's, she was a queen. But it was too late. The dogs had already eaten her. But he did trample her. That which is despicable, we trample upon, typically. And that's what people do when they go on sinning willfully and do not thereby manifest that they believe in the sacrifice of Christ. They are trampling his sacrifice underfoot. They regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. They regard it as unclean. They might say, oh yeah, yeah, it is, my, it is my source. I do believe in Christ. But not if they are living in sin. They regard it as unclean. Because if they regarded it as clean, then it would clean up their filthy sins. But they don't want it to clean up their filthy sins. Therefore, they are regarding it as unclean. Also, they insult the spirit of grace. This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, according to Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is called here the Spirit of grace. They tout grace, but they don't believe in grace. They don't believe in grace because they insult the Spirit of grace. They do not truly understand the grace of God in predestination, the grace of God in salvation, the grace of God in sanctification, they don't understand it because they are insulting the spirit of grace. And this should not be a surprise. Verse 30, he cites two passages, one from Deuteronomy 32, 35, and the other from Deuteronomy 32, 36. Deuteronomy 32, 35, and 36. Which, by the way, um, a supreme, masterful exposition of theology is in Deuteronomy 32. The song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 has a lot of rich theology that everybody should read and study carefully. Well, he's citing that passage where Moses declared by the word of the Lord, vengeance is mine, I will repay. (coughs) We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. That's why he says we know him. God is a God of vengeance. He will inflict repayment on those who deserve his wrath. He also will be the judge of his people. (coughs) Not a foreign God, not no God, not a denial of the day of judgment. There is a day of judgment and God will be overseeing all of that judgment. And 31, if this hasn't awakened terror, he mentions terror. He says in 31, it is asserting a fact. 
It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. People take God lightly. They take him flippantly. They think that his grace is going to take care of things on the day of judgment. But it will will not if it has not here. It's going to be a terrifying event for God's fierce wrath to be inflicted on everyone who does not believe in Christ, who does not truly believe in Christ. He's the living God able to do so. He's not a dead idol, but the living God. Okay, now, 32 to 35, an exhortation to persevere, an encouragement to persevere. He, remember, here and other parts of Scripture, many parts of Scripture, will intersperse, will weave together passages of encouragement along with admonition. There will be warnings and encouragements back to back, back and forth. That's what's happening here. 32 to 35, encouragement. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not... Throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He recalls and calls on them to recall the fact that they endured much, much and great conflict in the past. They were public spectacles. They were reproached. And they, it happened to them and they also shared with others to whom it happened. They didn't stop self-identifying with those who were being persecuted. They continued their associations. And then whenever the, the prisoners, wrongfully in prison because of the faith, whenever they were thrown into prison, they these saints did not ditch them and say, I don't want to associate with them because if I associate with them, the authorities might chase me too and throw me into prison along with my old friend. No, they identified with the righteous. And then when their property was seized, they had the right attitude. They weren't sweating it. They weren't anxious about it. It says they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. Joyfully because it doesn't matter. They have eternal property. They have an eternal inheritance, a better possession and an abiding one or lasting one, because it's eternal. It's in heaven. So why be concerned? Why sweat it? 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Confidence, assurance, faith in Christ has a great reward. 36 to 39. 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. You have need of endurance. Yes, we all have need of endurance. Endurance is necessary. It is not possible for someone to have eternal salvation and claim to have it and abandon the faith, to deny the faith. And to deny the faith not only with their lips. I used to believe in Christ, but now I don't believe in Christ. I don't believe in anything anymore. That happens sometimes, but that's not what we're talking about. That is common. What is common? Not enduring through persecutions, not enduring through sufferings, claiming to have faith, but not having confidence, boldness, courage to do what's right. That's when people don't endure. They say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to stay quiet about it. I'm a Christian, but I just want peace. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to seek harmony at all costs. That's not the way of the Christian life. Did Jesus do that? Remember, he came to do the will of God. And look here too. We are also supposed to do the will of God in verse 36. So that when you have done the will of God, <clears throat> you may receive what was promised. It's also necessary for us to do the will of God, even to the point of death. Verse 37 is quoting the first part of verse 37 quotes Isaiah 26, 20, Isaiah 26, 20 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Isaiah 26, 20 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And then in verse 37, the second half of it is quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Habakkuk 2, 3 to 4, also from the Greek of the Old Testament. And what does it say? He compiles these two statements from the different prophets to say that the coming of Christ is in a very little while, he will not delay. Christ is coming. If he's coming, we must be ready for his coming. And how are we to be ready? Verse 38, by faith, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If we have faith, it will be lasting faith, continual faith. It will last until we see him face to face. The opposite of lasting faith, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Those who have temporary faith, those who have fleeting faith, have a false faith because they will shrink back. If they shrink back by denial, by ungodliness, by wickedness, by sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, if they shrink back, then 
My soul has no pleasure in him. God wants faithful ones who are faithful to the very end. 39, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Shrinking back means shrinking back to destruction. It doesn't mean temporary lapse or shrink back. You didn't have such a hard life as a Christian, but you, you will go to heaven. He is saying the opposite. He says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. If God has no pleasure in the men who shrink back, then they will be destroyed. On the contrary, those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He has confidence in the majority of his readers that they are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. If we maintain the faith, we preserve our soul. Anything less than what he has said here brings destruction. We must believe in the death of Christ, nothing else for our forgiveness. We must also press on, endure, hold fast until the very end. If we do not, and we casually take the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's nothing else. So let's cling to the cross of Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.